The Global Sport Matters podcast is presented by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment, a division of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management dedicated to serving the unique and sophisticated needs of professional athletes and entertainers. This is Sport Matters with Kenneth Shropshire and Bill Roden. From academia to media, Ken and Bill explore the edges of sport, unpacking race and culture beyond the game. Welcome to the Sport Matters podcast. I'm Ken Shropshire. And today we've got a special conversation on a book I wrote 25 years ago, 25 plus, in black and white race and sports in America. And we're going to look at where we are today. I'll talk some about why I wrote it. And maybe we will uh, solve some problems today with, with two special special guests. First, Elon Grunewald from Stellenbosch University, um, a good friend. She'll tell you a lot more about her background. She's uh, done so much in the world of sports, both at the college level and globally uh, and the national level, uh, professionally, um, in South Africa. And then my colleague, Dr. Scott Brooks, the director of research and a professor of sociology. Uh, Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you you very much, Ken. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be your guest. I think we're becoming more family, so I look forward to the conversation because 25 <laughs> years ago, when you wrote the book, I really started to do my work, so I hope I can uh, give you some insights. But thanks for the for the invitation. I thought you were five years old 25 years ago. But okay. No, 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 definitely not. <laughs> Much older. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're so, so happy to have you. And... The good thing about this conversation, in a a moment, I'm going to turn it over to Scott, and he's going to kind of guide us through some some topics and ways to think about this. I have been asked, and I still don't have the answer, why 25 years ago did did I write the book? What what was I I thinking about? And in some ways, I, I can only reflect on how much things have not changed in 25 years. So if you just think about where we are today in sports in terms of uh, race issues, especially uh, black versus white issues, so much is the same that it was. You know, one of the reasons I, I wrote the book was the absence of African American head coaches in the National Football League. I think in in that moment there there may have been two or three. Uh, it wasn't many, and and whatever it was, I can just about guarantee you it was more than there is now in terms of the number of head coaches in the National Football League. Um, probably pretty close to in Major League Baseball. I think there were, there may have been three managers in Major League Baseball, so I think about it, and today there are two. Um, and so what the book was trying to explore, um, and, and this was in the, uh, frankly, more the, the legal part of my life, a lot of the emphasis was on what are some of the legal actions that can be taken to change things? To, to, write, to write things and, and to, you know, people talk a lot, especially in college sports about, for example, giving student athletes the right to use their name, image, and likeness. Hmm. Well, they already have the right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, in some ways it's to, um, uh, we talk about the kind of natural law and the sort of thing. It, a lot of this we're talking about just giving people what they're supposed to have. So providing opportunities in sport so, so Scott will we'll guide us through the conversation. We'll talk about this in, in a lot more depth, and uh, I will talk about too to reflect on uh, this this twenty five year ago journey to today. Scott, 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's for me, I remember reading this book around, um, it was somewhere around 90, 97, 98, as I was working on a master's. And, and what struck me was th your approach that really did highlight why this isn't so easy, right? So from the outside, you just say, well, why can't we do a better job? Why can't we just have more coaches? Why can't we just have more general managers and owners? And what's really at the crux of it? And I think that's where I wanna I wanna start because can you highlight something in there? And it's it's very early on in, in this idea of the roots of racism. And so when we're looking at American apartheid, there's very similar stories to talk about the roots of racism and in particular in sports. And and one of the things you say is and you were citing someone else, so I, I don't know how much of it is all your idea and whatnot, <laughs> but you, you talk about this notion of it's not just that owners need to give up their jobs, right? It's not just their jobs. It's giving up, actually, the power of who they give the jobs to. And so that's a great distinction because most of the time people, you know, and particularly in America, this notion of what's mine is mine. You can't just take it away from me. And what you highlighted was we don't have to focus there. We can focus on the process that continues to exclude. So, you know, Ilam, you know, the, the history of South Africa, I'm going to ask you to give us your your brief <laughs> idea of this of this racism. And then the other piece of it is, you know, here in the States, ownership is private. Right. And. These are really families or, or just these close-knit networks that are just handing over opportunities. And we don't know much about South Africa, how it works in rugby or soccer, right, or cricket in terms of the ownership and, and what's going on. We know you're, you, run a, you run a university, so you're the equivalent to our athletic director you know, with that VP title and all of that. But let's start at that, at that high level. Talk to us a little bit about... South Africa the and the racism of sport, kind of the roots of that, giving us a little bit of the history. Well, um, it started um, obviously linked to apartheid and, and everybody else. It doesn't matter where you were at the time and what you were doing, you were impacted on. And pretty much in the late 60s, early 70s, the sport boycotts, unlike, uh, uh, you know, for us, this has not happened in any other country. I think South Africa is quite unique. Um, in terms of the contributions that sport boycotts had uh, to the liberation struggle. And, I mean, it even led to New Zealand, for example, withdrawing and saying that they are not coming to South Africa. And I was still very young uh, when the, the, the first um, uh, non-racial sport organization was started in 1973 um, called SACOS. Um, and, and, but, but that's where I got my, my learnings from. So yes, Ken, um, I wasn't that young when you published your book, but when everything happened in South Africa, I was, I was quite young. Um, and I think we, we, um, what saddens me uh, today, if I look back to the history of South Africa, is that, and we will get through this and, and share similar stories, is that there, there is a missing link and picking up that very same commitment in, in, in challenging certain, certain struggles that we still have in sport. And so for me, the fact that we could use sport as a tool to achieve that, I mean, I remember very well when I was a student, we would go to an athletic event and very quietly that stadium would turn into thousands of uh, comrades turning up where we would talk about apartheid and how we're going to demolish apartheid and using sport 
as a tool to achieve that. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting and I'm getting goosebumps. I mean, I was very young. I was 18 years old. And so for me, um, that, that struggle and, and looking at Ken's book and I look at the themes of the book, I, I do believe, Ken, that you, I know that you visited South Africa, but it feels like you are telling the story of rugby in my country. Um, so yes, uh, so my experience is definitely similar, similar in that context. Um, and a lot, of, uh, a lot has changed, but a lot, uh, so has most of the things have not changed. We'll talk about those structural things that hasn't changed. So you speak about family, Scott. It's the same in rugby. Um, it's also in football, perhaps in a more subtle way, where you have the families. I mean, you have, uh, I said the other day, you're probably going to have leadership for life. We're going to have to wait until people pass before leadership changes. And so it's a similar story that we can tell. Um, I think rugby in particular, we do, I, I don't, we do not have any black owners of, of, of franchise rugby in South Africa. So it's a similar story. You know, and, and I think one of the things that may be a little bit different, and I don't know as much here on the, well, on the state side, I don't see it. And that is this international ownership, right? So uh, Mr. Mazzotti, who is a South African, right, born in South Africa, um, has become the, you know, he's a part of the international group, the, and it's primarily Americans, uh, who own the Sharks, right, um, in, in South Africa, in the States, though, we don't have as much of this international ownership, right? We see it in, in the English Premier Leagues. You know, how has that changed some things? You know, and so, Ken, I'll, I'll start with you. How Our ownership stays pretty domestic. Is that correct? And, you know, talk to us a little bit about how ownership maybe has changed, because I know we do have different kind of backgrounds for owners than we used to have and, and like where they first made their money. But maybe, you know, give us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, there, there've been a, a a a couple. I mean, in in uh, you know, in, uh, in Seattle, uh, baseball wise, over the years, there's Japanese ownership, and um, so so there's been some, not 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 a lot. And you know, it's funny you you mentioned that because I've, I've been working a lot with the National Football League on on black ownership. I sh some of these things I shouldn't admit because they look like abject failures. You know, why do, why do people <laughs> working with you if you can't get it done? And, and one of the things that I think about periodically is, you know, there's five or six uh, uh, African-American billionaires and in varying degrees, they don't have the interest in owning a franchise and, you know, maybe they don't have enough billions to own a franchise. So then you start to think about the issue of black, black ownership. And, and maybe there's the Nigerian guy or, or, you know, the great business person in Africa that, that is a billionaire and has the wherewithal to do it. So in, in some ways, what, what you're talking about is, is, is maybe if it's blackness, we want an ownership, maybe we can find a, another way to do it. But, but, but we, as you said, it's global ownership in the States is, is limited. There's a lot going the other way. A lot, a lot of, uh, money from the States going into to global, global football, soccer, for sure. So, you know, as, as the world continues to flatten out, maybe that that's a possibility, but that even gets this whole, this whole other issue that, that, you know, you and I have been talking about recently in the world, to some extent, uh, uh, the, the idea that, that, uh, it, it does it help the situation that you have, uh, for example, African ownership in the United States. Is, is that really 
you know, if we're, if we're talking about uh, busting through the vestiges of slavery in the United States, and if there's not a, a, a direct connection to someone that was formerly enslaved, is that more the immigrant story than, than one of, of, of resolving um, long hold, long held um, negative um, impacts of, of slavery? Yeah. And, and, and so, Ilam, as you said, you, you all don't have you know, ownerships. You don't have owners of color there, you know, in, in a majority sense anyway. Um, yeah. But how how does that how does that play out? Is that something you think is going to be changing soon? Do you think it's going to stick? You talked about, you know, this kind of for life piece, you know, and so how does that work? I mean, with South Africans, colored South Africans making up 90 percent or so of the population, how close are we maybe? Is it just a financial thing or is it really just the closed off networks? Look, I think it's the opposite in, in football, soccer, where we have more black ownership and we have uh, uh, some, uh, some of the black ownership moving into uh, rugby as well. Uh, the same gentleman, Patrice Motsepe, who now heads up CAF, he, he sports stakes into rugby. And for me, it was a great celebration because now it, it changes the, the, the narrative, you know, and hopefully that could, uh, could spill into other of the rugby franchises. Um, uh, the, the cricket franchises are owned by the, by the National Federation, so um, there's, there's very little, so it's more your, your uh, commercial investment that happens. So it, the, the models are quite different, um, and I think it's going to change. Uh, we've been busy with a, a commercial model and uh, ownership um, in terms of who owns what percentage, always took up the debate of the, instead of looking at the deeper issues. So if I am, if I am making a 60% uh, shareholder, does it really mean that it's a takeover the way people would see it? Uh, so that has been at the forefront of the discussions, and I happen to be part of those conversations in the rugby space. And I think they, they're slowly uh, starting to, to be a mind, mind a shift um, which is, which is good, and therefore sharks, for example. You've mentioned the sharks example, and um, it, maybe you're not aware, but uh, the investor first approached my own province, and, and they said no um, for reasons um, that I, I still can't believe why they, they use those reasons. So I think it's definitely changing slowly. Perhaps in the next five years, particularly in the South African rugby space, we would see a lot more of that international ownership um, uh, becoming part of our, our environment. And I mean, there, there are positives and there are negatives, I think, but if the positives outweighs the negatives and, and, and then we can go for it. I think what is, what is uh, perhaps uh, better for us uh, versus the states, um, because I mean, our political systems are so different. Um, that's, that's one of your bigger challenges. But what is good for us is that we have laws, so there, there wouldn't be any concerns around whether we will feel they transform team or not. Um, I think those are some of the issues that people were concerned about, which I think we, we shouldn't. I think we, we do have a legislative space that can actually protect us um, in a good way. Well, and, and I'm glad that you brought up uh, your transform team, because, of course, we've we've got to we've got to define that for for some of our listeners, this idea of. <laughs> Of, of having a transformed team. And for us, that's almost always a starting point. When we look at uh, the National Football League, 
you know, black athletes make up 70%, you know, and it goes up and down from there of the athletes. And so we use that as a basis to say, clearly there's a problem. If we're, we only make up 13% or a little bit less now, the population, we're overly populated as athletes in those sports. And where's the representation at the coach level and, you know, into the office level, the, the management administrators level and into the ownership level, you all have a mix, right? And so you've got rugby, which is increasing, but you have, you know, it doesn't have the diversity that soccer has. Soccer is, you know, so talk to us a little bit about rugby, cricket and soccer, the who's on the field versus who we see as the administrators um, and, and as the owners. So there's definitely been a big shift. I mean, we um, uh, legislated transformation in sport in South Africa um, around about 2012. Um, so it's been a, a short journey, but I think there's been a lot of benefits um, that, that, that we can demonstrate. But then um, that's, I call it on the surface, but what's beneath the surface, that's, that's the more concerning parts for me. So the transformation charter basically has six dimensions and one part of it basically speaks about demographic representation and it, it's applicable to everyone, uh, those on the field and those off the field. And I think from an off the field uh, um, point of view, uh, similar to, to what's happening with, the, with basketball in the States, um, there's been some change, uh, but not at the level of decision-making, you know, and that's why I call it beneath the surface. Um, so you can brag about administrative and management appointments, but if they don't have the power to change uh, where things should change, then you can't call that the real true transformation. And we have that challenge. In South Africa, in rugby, for example, we do not have one black CEO running a franchise. Um, and, and I mean, that's it's just bizarre, but that, that's the case. Um, we, like I said, the cricket franchise becomes part of their provincial, um, um, in your case, different states set up. So it's usually the same executive committees with some board representation that, that make the decisions. Um, football, uh, black owned, which uh, for me is also an important discussion point. Um, because I remember when my university started to play football, we probably fielded the most transformed team. And when I say most transformed team, we really had a representation across the spectrum of the demographics of South Africa. So, so the, the, the top level, where the decisions need to make, no, we are not there at all. That's, that for me is key. But I'm sure... Uh, Ken, well, I when I read the, when I looked at the chapters and I specifically looked at the the front office and you know and, uh, the, the fear of the black planet, it's it's been surfacing in in our sporting environments as well, where you see executive committees being represented by mainly black people in South Africa, and there's a huge fear, you know, what's going to happen. So, some very interesting, and that's probably why the change at the top level is not happening particularly because of that fear and not wanting to let go of the power of decision-making. Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the other aspects in, in trying to combat this is to really, you know, often people, it seems when we're at, when you hear mainstream, at least in the States, there are these questions still of why, why does it matter, right? And the thought that 
you know, this meritocracy, right? That people have either earned this money so they should be able to own and do what they want to do, right? But there's this idea that somehow it's unnatural to be asking for these changes. You know, how do we how do we show or prove that diversity is important? So, Kim, when you think about it, having been in this space for, for so long, how do you how do you speak to the NFL and other organizations about why they should do this? You know, the I wrote, I wrote a book uh, when I was trying to write a follow up to this book, which kind of got off track. And I was trying to think about that, that question, the, the why and, and why do we want this? You know, why, why do we want um, equal opportunity? You know, kind of the, the old school phrasing of of trying to trying to get equality. And the word I, I kept coming back to and actually put in the, in the title of the book um, on sport matters, um, respect that, that, you know, you can think about it in the street way that, that, you know, you, you got to respect me. Don't step on my feet, that kind of stuff, or just the way that you treat people. How do you want to, how do you want to be treated? So probably the other word, and I said it earlier, it's, is is fair, fairness too. You know, why, why, why is it important? It is kind of a, I mentioned natural law, I'm really getting more philosophical than I normally am. But the whole idea of, you know, treating others the way you want, you want yourself to be treated. And you said, you said something at the beginning, you know, at one point, and I really should read the book again, I, I, you know, I can't get myself to, to reread the whole thing, although I've looked at bits and pieces of it. And, you know, we've been talking a, a lot about uh, interest convergence and, you know, Derek, Derek Bell, I think, coined the phrase in 1980. I was reading some old law review articles trying to figure out where it came from. And he doesn't reference anybody else before he, he sets forth. And he says, you know, you can try to change hearts and minds and do all this stuff you want to do, legislate and have court victories and all that sort of stuff. But unless you can get the interests of the parties aligned, the change is not going to be permanent. The idea that, that you've got to figure out what it is that will make those people in power. And you talked about, and again, I, I don't know, nobody sued me yet. So maybe I, maybe I made, maybe I did say something directly myself, <laughs> but, but how do you get people to change? It's by trying to find um, where interests converge, where there's benefit to, to all. And, you know, watching the, kind of the magnificent greatest moments of transformation in South Africa, where it basically it was like, okay, our interest is this country won't survive unless we all come together. So there was this, you know, fabulous rainbow moment where everybody said, okay, this, this is what, what we've got to do. I mean, there was definitely on both sides of the bitter enders and, and, and others on the other side that said, well, you know, I don't care. But for the most part, you could, could bring people together with this whole idea of this thing is going to be destroyed if we don't do it. So, you know, the timing of, the, of this, this book, and I think about what was going on in South Africa in the mid-90s, um, it kind of gives a little bit of the, the flavor in, in both countries. And in, in, in this book, in this moment, I could have, and I think I mentioned a, a little bit about the absence of black quarterbacks. And, and well, as the sport changed, it was in the interest of, the leaders in sport to bring in more black quarterbacks because the, the athletic style of black quarterbacks at the time was the perfect antidote to 
Lawrence Taylor to, to kind of these, you had to get away from these defensive players. So the interests converge. It, it wasn't like, okay, it's time. It was like, yeah, it's time, but it's time because we want to win on the field of play. So, you know, so I get, I have drifted to a lot more of that is, um, you know, we want the respect thing. We want to be treated fairly, but in the end, you know, rather than trying to create the next new law or be persuasive in a general sense of what's right, <laughs> you know, maybe we should spend our time trying to figure out where do the interests converge. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, yeah, I would agree. I would agree with Ken. You know, we have laws, we have plans, we, and then it doesn't happen. And, and that's a very important question because what we are challenged with now in South Africa is um, we have a lot of anger in the system uh, because of the change that happened uh, the other day on social media. I read about um, people and they're much older than me and you read about what they post and their anger because of how we transitioned from apartheid into what they call a so-called um, democratic uh, you know, South society and what happened to sport. Mm-hmm. And so I always try and understand, you know, because, um, um, you know, our interests, um, we've come together to talk about this and, and what, are, what are our lessons uh, that mm-hmm. we can actually learn also as a country because of, of, of perhaps we, 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 we were too, too, um, too in a hurry, um, which is what some people are saying. We've given too much away. I mean, even to the extent that there was huge criticism around how the late Nelson Mandela led the, the discussions around sport and who should have been at the table. So there's a lot of anger in our system. Um, and I, I think if I look back, uh, if, I, if I look at, the, at, at your environment, um, I mean, Title IX has been there for, what, 50 years? Um, and it, it hasn't given you the change that you wanted to see. So, you know, where are we getting this wrong? A colleague the other day said that transformation is about the heart. And, and, and um, you know, I was, I was sitting there thinking, no, it's not just about the heart. You know, people can have good hearts and then they discriminate so badly and, they, and not even we understand why good people do that. So, so yes, Ken, I, I was going to ask you, why did you like this book? This, this book is it's a mirror effect of what's happening in my country. And, it's a, and I must tell you that I still feel the pain on a regular basis. It's, it's, and I'm sure you do too. And so the question is, you know, what next? How are we going to make that change? You know, and one thing I'll, I'll add in here too, um, you, you mentioned um, Nelson Mandela and, and you know, in the, in the same context of, of dealing with this issue, I've been, you know, pandemic has allowed me to go back and read a lot of stuff that I haven't looked at for a while. Um, but Dr. King has a book called Why We Can't Wait. And um, kind of the thoughts in there intersect with criticisms of some of the, the great legal decisions in the, in the states on um, ending discrimination, Brown versus Board of Education, the, the uh, integration of schools, in the states in the mid 1950s, which I always try to say is 1950 here is that 1990 in South Africa in terms of, of you know, in terms of laws and, and what kind of progress can be made. And the, the one thing that, that both of those uh, critiques of that case and the book, Why We Can't Wait, talk about it, this whole idea of 
of gradualism. And in a letter, letter from the Birmingham DL2, Dr. King talks about that too, is that um, the so-called goodwill and badwill people on the other side will say, well, just be patient. Just, just you know, it's going to come. Just, just be patient. And I think about, um, again, with, with this book and, and even before, places where we were patient and now we'll never get in. <laughs> and ownership is one great example. The, you know, the, just because it's a, 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 a prominent number, you know, Donald Sterling buys the, the, the Clippers and the National Basketball Association in the 1980s, I guess it was, for $13 million, which many African-Americans could have pulled together at that time. Um, but across the leagues, there was... And, and many people reported to me when I wrote the book, there was a, there was a bar um, unstated that African-Americans were not going to be able to own a franchise. Now the, the price of a franchise, you know, the, the Denver Broncos, for example, are for sale in the United States for eh, maybe four and a half billion dollars. That's the price of, of gradualism. That's why we can't wait because now I, I don't know uh, I, I could not, you know, thirteen and a half million dollars. I could pull people together and figure that out. A four point five billion dollars. I have not a clue of, of how to make that happen. And that—that's the price yeah. of, of gradualism. That—that's why things need to be repaired as rapidly as. Yeah, and and Elam, you you brought up Title Nine. Talk to us a little bit about you know women and their roles in sports. Sports. Administ- as sports administrators, where we can find them in the in the front office, you know, how is it working in South Africa? Do you have an, an equivalent, or is that all a part of transformation codes for for us to talk about gender equity? So, if I look at the university setup, we're not doing very well. Um, <clears throat> out of the twenty six public universities, only five of us are heading up our respective sport departments, and that's not that's not a very good picture. Uh, if you go to our our national sports setup, it's the same. Um, very few um, female um, CEOs. We we recently appointed a CEO for our um, Olympic uh, Confederation, which which is a great move, and hopefully that will will um, provide opportunities for others. We, um, as I've mentioned, the the um, transformation charter. So all of us are required to, to meet the, the, the six dimensions of the, of the charter, but many of us don't. Um, we have the same setup where uh, people at a lower level, the way the representation really looks very good. And when I, for example, looked at the, at the NBA's rate card, I, I saw that there's been a tremendous increase in, in, in staff, you know, frontline staff and also with assistant uh, black coaches. And one of the points that notes that I made, so I'm wondering how many of them have succession plans in place so that three, four years when the head coach position becomes vacant, that they don't have to advertise, but somebody gets promoted. And we have exactly the same challenge. Um, I mean, I moved, as you know, from University of the Western Cape to Stellenbosch University, um, which meant that there was no succession plan. That's why they appointed me. Um, um, at, at the University of the Western Cape, um, for various reasons, they also decided to bring somebody in from external. So we don't have good succession plans. 
So our, our higher education environment is, is, is a challenge. However, at a national level where we uh, have a similar structure, such as the NCAA, we're doing very well. And we have in the constitution of the organization that 50% must be women. Uh, the same with our, our Olympic uh, structure. So there, there are rules uh, uh, in place. And for university sport, it has never been an issue. I mean, you know that we've had a number of female uh, leaders um, heading up that, that, that college structure. Uh, whereas, I mean, I look at the Division One, particularly uh, in your case, and um, if I remember correctly, um, I counted only three women that are, that are part of, of, of that uh, governing structure. And, and for me, unless we change that, um, we diversify that space, we're going to continue to struggle to see the results that we're all looking for. So with, as, as much as we have the laws in place, we have the constitutions in place, um, the results still is not what it should be, Scott. This episode of the Global Sport Matters podcast is brought to you by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment. You have that something extra, the star quality, the intangibles that put you on top of your game, your artistry. You flourish in fiercely competitive industries. You already have the vision, but you may need the plan. Your distinct needs inspired the creation of Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment, a division of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management dedicated to serving the unique and sophisticated needs of professional athletes and entertainers. We speak your language, we understand your business, and can help you achieve your goals. Visit ms.com slash GSE to learn more. Yeah, no, so, I mean, you bring up one of the interesting differences, right? And so in the United States, we would call it quotas, right? To say that you have to have a certain number. And again, that was something we started with. And now we've backed way, we've backed all the way off of that. We don't have quotas. You know, the Rooney rule is you have to interview, but we don't insist that you have to have a certain number. Although you'll get that there are some targets, our enforcement of even that is really not good. So how do you all enforce? Is your enforcement really good? What are the kind of mechanisms that you do to enforce that there are certain numbers of women or certain number, you know, of, of colored or blacks? Now, how do you all enforce that? So most of us, um, it's required to be aligned to the university's vision. So we fall under the Employment Equity Act of South Africa. So education uh, on an annual basis, they report to the minister's office around employment equity and how, how the representation has changed. And in our setup at Stellenbosch University, our sport department fits into that requirement. So it, we need to have an employment equity plan. Um, we have a transformation plan that speaks to our various sport codes and, and a few other universities. And I'm saying a few other universities because a couple of years ago when we, uh, when we discussed transformation and we were challenging each other, the irony was that some of my fellow colleagues asked me to share my transformation plan. And I mean, I'm a, I come from a historically white university. And the reason why I'm using this example is because I don't have a choice but to have a concerted effort to make sure that it happens. Whereas at my fellow historically black universities, it's a natural progression. It's a lot more natural where they are able to appoint the black coaches, appoint the black staff, attract the black students. So they, in, within that space, we, we have different challenges that we're dealing with. Um, but we basically align to the transformation charter of, of, of South Africa for sport. 
So, so Kim, when I think about, you know, Zillam has brought up this, you know, internal hiring, we don't see that much in our, in our professional leagues. We don't, I mean, it seems like, was that something we used to see more and it just, and, and do you have any explanations or ideas as to if we had it before, how we got away from that? But it seems like each hiring is its own brand new kind of transition. Uh, that, 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 that's a that's a great great question, and I I don't think so. I mean, I don't have a whole great grasp of the story context. You know, you think about uh, Tony Dungy's specifically designated Jim Caldwell to take over from him uh, from the Super Bowl winning team in Indianapolis Colts, but you can think of other instances just just kind of scattered throughout sport. There wasn't a specific designee for, you know, the great Vince Lombardi or for John Wooden at UCLA or somebody like that. So it's not a, a, a general practice. You know, sometimes people say somebody's being groomed for the position and, and they end up going somewhere else. So it hasn't happened with great frequency. I mean, it is a path, you know, down at, uh, at Tampa Bay, the idea that Byron Leftwich may take over from Bruce Arians at some point that he's groomed specifically people that traditionally uh, co- go to the head coaching position coordinators. So it's, it's possible, but not, it hasn't been and, and that, you know, kind of we're going to be the solutions show <laughs> that, that you doing more of that might be one of the solutions that, that sits out there. You know, it, maybe so- I could use our rugby as an example, Scott, you know, we, would have thought that South Africa will win the Rugby World Cup in 2019, you know, considering how badly we played in 2018. And I think for me, that's a very good success story uh, because Sia is not just our captain because he's black. I mean, he's a captain because he's, he, he's, a, he's a true South African story. And if I look at uh, hiring, um, yes, uh, we brought back Rassi as a white coach. But Rassi made sure that the rest of his staffing complement um, represents South Africa because he had to do that. I mean, if you look at how the team transformed, we, we forget about how powerful uh, language is, culture. And I mean, other than what you see on social media, when you do engage with Rassi, um, you know, how many people know that he personally got to know players, their families, um, and that is what we need to do. Uh, it, it shouldn't just be lip service. If we truly want uh, diverse, have a diverse and inclusive environment, it's a lot more than just how many people are black and how many people are white. Uh, that's the transformative space that I think we, we are not having the tough conversations um, as far as that is concerned. And I think that, that for me is a, is a story that, that hopefully will, will last us long enough so we can continue to tell more of those stories. No, I mean, it, it's a great point. I, I mean, what one of the things that really interests me when I read about South Africa and its sports history, and again, the demographics are so different, right? Whites make up less than 10%, and yet yeah. they own about 90%, right? So they, they their ownership in, in the country, their wealth is so high. Um, but when the transformation, particularly at the youth level, and I'm someone who studies youth, I won't stay here for long, Kim, forgive me, I know it's not in the book, but the idea of the building capacity, right? So the transformation that says we acknowledge the structure that has poor black kids 
you know, colored kids that don't have the facilities that you see in the Afrikaans community, right? That we're going to build that. And so emphasizing and saying you still have to bring in non-whites into sports at the youngest levels and even at the highest levels in order to build capacity, because otherwise it won't happen, is something we did not do in, in the States, right? And so we still are very, very segregated when it comes to sport. And there is no push, no real serious effort to ensure that capacity is being built. You know, even if it's not at the communities, I know the work that you've done, you know, in, in, in the Western Cape where you're doing research to see how many girls are getting to participate and and so on. That's just very different than what we get here. And building that capacity, you know, when you're looking at cricket, I was reading a story that said, hey, if we didn't invest, we wouldn't have the transformed team that is now seeing success. And that really sounds like the model, right? That if you invest, there is something at the end of the road, much like how businesses are saying, inclusion and belonging is the real thing we're after. Not just the counting, not just the diversity, as you said, counting how many blacks we have, but that inclusion and belonging, because we know that's going to maximize the potential of the team and get us to that real success. Talk to us a little bit about that capacity building that you all are doing, um, knowing that there's still a lot of challenges there, but the fact that you all are doing it, I think, is noteworthy. We, we have um, a, a very large non-governmental organization network in South Africa, and they're doing fantastic work. I'm starting with them because sometimes we, we, we don't talk about the great work that they do. And, you know, our colleague, uh, Prof. Marian Kaim at UWC, she's been involved in that. And then we have um, our um, community club systems. And the other day we were having a chat and said, you know, we want to teach our sport people about entrepreneurship, about innovation. But actually, we've been entrepreneurs for many, many years. You think about it, how we had to pay subscription fees, to fundraising, to pay for apparel, etc. So that entrepreneurial spirit has always been there. And I think that's where the capacity really started to, to be developed because we had to survive, Scott. It, uh, people, some still, depending where you are, they run their community sport clubs from their carpools. It's, 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 it's something that's still very uh, prevalent in our societies. And I think uh, one shouldn't underestimate the capacity that you build there. Don't sit in a boardroom and assume people do not have skills. It's, it's something that I think we make the mistake on a regular basis. And so I'm using this as an example to say that if, if we in South Africa didn't have that system, we would have uh, missed so many young women and girls becoming part of sport. And then we must not forget that uh, people involved in these structures, there's a high level of activism that's happening. Now, perhaps uh, the, the, the narrative has changed uh, prior to our democratic uh, country, but I think the narrative still remains the same to provide access. And access is one of the dimensions of our transformation charter, as well as skills and capacity building. The one other part is around black economic empowerment. So I quickly want to give you this information in case you didn't know. One of our major banks in South Africa withdrew their sponsorship from the, the Springbok rugby team because it wasn't transformed enough. And for me, that was very empowering because I think it sent a very strong message to the rest of the rugby fraternity to say, well, you're dependent on our money, so you need to make a difference. 
I also want to highlight the, 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 volunteer, um, the volunteerism in sport in South Africa. Thousands and thousands of people do not get paid or don't receive any allowances for running sport. I mean, we still do it in volleyball. We've done it for years. Um, I mean, we would take, my husband would take our van and transport kids to the townships and pick them up, bring them to a volleyball practice. And, and so do many other people. And uh, um, I think that that's all part of, of, of our investment and our way of building capacity. Because if we don't do go that extra mile, our community sport will die. Because, you know, uh, uh, the, the laws in our country has also changed for school sport, where sport in our school system is no longer compulsory. And that means we need to do a lot more work in our communities to make sure that women and girls participate. We've got... Universities have what we call social impact programs where we go out into our various environments and we take our, our current coaches, um, our staff, and we go and do work in the various communities. Many of our public universities have that. And I think we should do that because we've got the infrastructure, we've got the human capacity, we have got the resources. And I think that is something that we've spoken about this way back when we met at UWC. It's something that can be done so easily in the States, but it's not happening. Um, I, I looked at um, what was also interesting, Division Three of the NCAA, one of their priority areas is to, to, to make a difference in their communities. And I was wondering, but why isn't this a, a cross uh, priority and principle for the, for the NCAA? Because the NCAA does have the resources to do something like that. Um, that's just a point I wanted to, to, to put in there. No, no, it's a, it's a fantastic point. I mean, we're we're thinking more about social responsibility of our <laughs> universities as well as corporations, um, and I think it is something that we haven't we haven't done enough of. We haven't done enough of. So I I, I want us to start to wrap it up, and I and I'm gonna and you brought up a good point, and that was looking at a sponsor. So I want us to start to think of what can the different stakeholders do in order for us to advance, and then. You know, I would be remiss if, if with with having both of you with Olympic kind of Federation Olympic experience, if we don't talk a little bit about, you know, the Olympics and, and what's just been going on with the, the Winter Olympics. But why don't we start with stakeholders? So, you know, what can owners do, Ken? And I, I'm going to see if we can't do kind of rapid, like real quick. What do you think owners could do? Um, if we start at that level to help us to advance, where are we now? And it, you know, are they the same answers you had when you wrote in black and white? Or what can be done? No, and the answer is actually different. They, they just need to hire. They need to impact their communities. And, and the whole idea of lawsuits and pressure. And No, just this is what you need. This is what you need to do. And I think um, you know, part of my thinking in, in the, the work that I do with the leagues is and we spent so much time developing these ideas and programs and Rooney Rule, all this sort of stuff. I now want to hear from owners, how, how can this happen? What, what is it that would help you to do this? As opposed to, as in so many cases, I've been on the end of delivering proposals on how to do it. And they say, okay, well, we'll take a look at this. Let's see what we can do. So I want to, I want to flip the whole narrative and I want to hear if owners are sincere. Let's hear from them. What what will it take to make the change? You know, the National Football League, where I hate to keep beating up the National Football League, but we're just in that moment right now. You know, thirty two teams, 
there are 12 who have never had a full-time uh, head coach that is African-American. It, it's just, just so why do you, you know, want it? I mean, what, you know, just, just give us more. How, how might that change for you? Is, it becomes the question. All right. Elam, was, what that, was that rapid enough? I'm sorry. No, no, it was. It was good. It was good. <laughs> Elon, what about you? What what can ownership do at at these at this highest level, or even what can universities do, right, to to kind of make this change? I think owners must ask themselves a question: you know, What legacy do they want to leave behind? Mm-hmm. So, what legacy do they want to leave behind for their grandchildren, their great grandchildren? Because I I suppose that's where we're heading. Um, and so, Ken, maybe that can become part of your your questions. Um, because I always ask that question, what, what legacy do you want to leave behind as a leader? Yeah. Leave the laws. Um, we don't, that's not going to fix it. Um, because I think we, we create more animosity when we begin to use the legal systems. So, mm-hmm. As far as universities are concerned, I think we, we're underestimating our responsibility across the globe. I think we have the power to to become part of conversations um, where we talk about, um, you know, moral degeneration. What, what is that? We've, we've, we've started that conversation in South Africa. And I specifically want to mention the, the, the anger when we had the Feast Must Fall movement. Our, the gen- they are tired. They, they don't want to listen to me and let's say, let's wait another year. And I think as universities, we need to understand the power of, of that generation. We attract them as the smartest young people to our universities. And then we want to suppress them by laws and rules, and regulations, and instead of uh, making them part of, of what we're doing. So this year, one of my themes at my department is how can we become a better to be thinking partners and I think, Ken, that's, that's probably also what you're trying to do with, um, with corporate and with owners, uh, so that we try to get to solutions as a collective. So I think that's what we need to do. After all, our responsibility is to generate uh, new knowledge and, and be uh, innovative. Uh, and I think in sport, we, we underestimate what it is that we can do, not just the sciences. You know, for me, leadership is also a science and, and what, what is it that, that, that we can do as, as people sitting in those boardrooms? Challenging ourselves and asking, you know, like I said earlier on in our informal chat, you know, do we still have the right people at the table? Yeah, yeah. And that's yes. the question that as universities we should ask ourselves. Okay. What about corporate sponsors? So, you know, Elam gave us an example of what they're doing there. Can, can corporate sponsors do anything? Yeah, and, and they have. I mean, you know, you know, and as more pressure comes upon them, maybe they'll, they'll do more. But the, the Washington football team example is probably the most um, you know, graphic for, for this moment when in the midst of uh, post-George Floyd activities in the, in the country, there was also a focus on the, the Washington football team's former name, the, the racist uh, R-word name and both uh, two of the major sponsors and, and probably others uh, FedEx and, and Nike both said if you don't change that name we're going to withdraw our sponsorship so I mean here's here's a thing we, I talked about litigation I, I talked about uh, the new legislation well 
the financial impact is, is probably the one that actually can have some staying power that can actually bring about permanent change. And this was a case where there was an owner, Dan Snyder, who said, the name will never change. <laughs> you, you can, you know, you, you can put it in your papers, sort of all this arrogant, uh, uh, you know, kind of dastardly uh, presence of, of not having no understanding of how racist the name was. But it, it took corporate sponsors to say, uh, this is what must happen and, and move, movement happens. So, so we've seen we've seen varying degrees of that. And it really is the case where, you know, and let's be honest, it's where uh, the corporate entities have consumers or shareholders who will withdraw from them if they don't take these steps, if they continue to support, support enterprises that are, are racist. So, so, yeah, so there's a great possibility there. And it hasn't been exercised enough. So, and on that, do you, just as a quick follow-up, do you think that they would get involved at the level of coaching and in any level of, of minority ownership? So, you know, I, I know they couldn't say you could be a majority owner, but do you think they would get involved there? Because part of me thinks they might get involved in names, right? They might get involved yeah. in others, but would, do you think they get involved in the actual hiring no, we're, we're, I mean, unless there's, in all, and it's pretty universal, unless there is a smoking gun, you know, unless there is a, uh, a you know, use of the N-word or something, something really negative that, that publicly occurs, for the most part, because their houses are not in order either. So for the most part, they're going to say, uh, if, if pressed, well, we don't want to interfere with the internal workings of, of this enterprise. You know, some some answer like that, and, and we do uh, 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 recommend, desire that everyone operate in a fair way. You know, sort of all that kind of language is what would take place, as opposed to really overstepping in a way that they wouldn't want to be overstepped upon. Okay, Elam, what about you? What what else can, can corporate sponsors do? I think uh, before corporate sponsors decide to go into agreement with anybody, I, it's important that, that there's a clear understanding around the, the, the business of, of whichever sport sporting organization, similar sporting organizations. And that is what, uh, in my space at universities, we've been working towards that quite a bit. And I must tell you, we've been quite successful with donations having done that. Um, and they ask the tough questions. Uh, and I think that's that's what we need to do on both sides. We need to know each other's uh, vision, mission statements. What is it that we want to achieve? How aligned are we really? And uh, versus waiting after you've signed on the dotted line and things started to appear and then you need to deal with that. So it's, um, you know, reputational damage control. I think that's very clear, clear understanding the alignment of each other's businesses. And then secondly, um, you spoke about the issue of capacity building and, and, and earlier on about being afraid of letting ownership go. I think it shouldn't be looked as letting ownership go. It's, it's, it's about doing the right thing. Uh, Ken spoke about parity, about fairness, about respect. And I think that's what you want for yourself is what you would want for people that you're going to go into partnership with and do business with. And so I think that that for me are, are two key key points that, that I think uh, businesses can, corporates can can reconsider and, and and come up with fresh ideas and new ways of looking at things. Because I think people are just generally afraid. Um, 
And how do you deal with that? Um, and sometimes it is about letting go mm-hmm. so that you can experience the other side. As simple I, as that. I, I really like that. I mean, maybe that's something that we, we can we can work on. And that's learning from you all. If there's something out there that says, here's what sponsors should be considering like maybe here's a checklist right here's here's some ways of checking to make sure your your interests are aligned this interest convergence before entering a deal because it's too late it seems to me once the deal has already been entered but if you could give them something that says before considering the sponsorship here are some things that you all should be uh, in alignment with. I think that that sounds like a really good idea of, of maybe something that we could we could move forward. All right, so now we're down to fans and athletes. So, Ken, why don't we start with fans? Because I always feel like the athletes um, is is something else uh, and, and, you know, interesting. But I want to hear your thoughts on what fans might be able to do. Uh, fans, fans aren't going anywhere. Fans, I mean, it, it's, I think that's, that's kind of fanciful. You know, the, the things that we've seen and, and fan reaction to everything that's happened especially in recent years, a boycott is not happening. I mean, you know, there's been so many calls to, you know, stand up against this or that or, you know, athlete, even, you know, kind of in the bizarro kind of world of athletes are kneeling. We, we need to stop going to games. Even, even on the right, people are like, I'm not going to give up my, my sport because of politics. I'm going to the games. I'm going to, I'm going to view these games. So, it, it, it's very hard to find a, a path unless, again, it, it's that that corporate connection in some way. But fans unilaterally, that, that's that's. And you know, by the way, if you, if you segment out, you want African American fans or, or Latino fans. Uh, frankly, in terms of the ticket buying public, that's a, that's a blip on the screen. That's a very small number. And in terms of viewership. It's so easy to switch, you know, if for some reason you got rid of all all black viewers and all uh, Latino viewers said we're not going to watch anymore. Well, believe me, the, the sponsors will say, OK, well, let's make sure we advertise products that, that go to the demographic that is watching and, and, and we'll try to grow other areas. Find those people who don't want to watch. Well, we already don't have, you know, women age 65 to 85 or whatever. So we'll just eliminate those segments, too. So, so Ilam, where where the country is 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 overwhelmingly non-white, what what can the fans do? Can the fans do something? Could they could they uh, do a boycott and 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 maybe change how things are operating? No, I'm I'm with Ken. I think the fans are not going anywhere. Um, even if you look at rugby, our, our fan engagement uh, is so diverse now, simply because the Springbok team changed. Um, uh, when we had the Black Lives Matter um, that we dealt with, uh, what I found that uh, what was missing is, um, you know, we thought people knew, but were, were athletes um, management informed properly? Were they educated? You know, I don't think that, those things happen. And I think that's what we can do. We can inform fans and athletes. We can educate them through our messaging. Um, and, and I think the digital space um, is a powerful space um, because I think that's where the transformation needs to change. Because that's that's where you're going to find that's where you find most people. And but I don't think fans and athletes are going anywhere. I also don't believe that athletes should um, be pulled into the politics of sport. Um, I've, I've always been 
It doesn't mean that they, so there's a difference in putting them in and a difference being part of, because part of means where you educate them, you inform them. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, we try to transform the spaces in that way. But fans and athletes, um, I think we should, we should leave them to do the jobs. And you and I were in the boardrooms and doing the research and being activists, etc. I think our jobs must continue. But um, as far as athletes are concerned, for me, it's about educate, educate, educate. And again, I want to say we attract the smartest young people to our universities. Don't underestimate their, their intelligence. You know, we... We can really find ways and means for them to become part of our spaces, and we can we can see the results. So. Yeah, great. Ken, on the the athletes, Elam has already given us her, her piece on that. What's your take on the athletes? Yeah, well, that, that's gotten better. I mean, you know, part of the the call in black and white was for athletes to step up. You know, the, the, I'd said, said to you before. One of the most stinging critiques I got in in Kirkus reviews was some anonymous reviewer saying, essentially, this fool author is longing for the days of 1968 where athletes protest again. And you know, maybe in the in the mid 90s, that was you know a bit ambitious on my part for that to happen. So nobody was more delighted than me when we saw the Minnesota Lynx and LeBron in Miami and the St. Louis Rams, so this whole series, uh, and then leading to Kaepernick. You know, granted, it was, you know, 20-some years later after I, I was calling for it. So, so I do think it's, it's, a, it's a new day in a limited kind of way. I, I think it's, it's still the strategy of how it works uh, and how to do it. I, th- I think the professional level will see more and more. But, you know, it, it all depends, too, if there's not a a LeBron kind of leadership of, yes, it is okay, and you still be commercially successful and speak up on these issues. I think that the next level down, the college level, we're beginning to see more and more too. So so I am optimistic of, of more impact. You know, frankly, the, the one place where we could see it and we haven't seen it, again, it's just for my final, uh, you know, let me kick the body while it's all the way down on NFL. <laughs> Um, this black head coach issue, that is somewhere where the athletes could really have an impact. Mum has been the word overall in terms of, of public speaking on, on that issue. Yeah. So, so if I wanted to, I just wanted to add, you know, I, I think we, we should allow athletes to, to be part of it if they want to. We shouldn't force them not to be part of it. But on the other hand, the argument that we dealt with should be force athletes to do to take the the, the knee. You, you read what happened to cricket, um, and that's what I meant. Later on, you followed the story. It was about information. It's about how decision was made to 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 take the knee or not take the knee. To, to take the knee. I mean, you can't tell a team two hours before the time you need to go take the knee. You you don't do that. That's what I meant in terms of informing and educating our young people. And I agree, uh, Ken particularly our younger athletes. That's where we can make the difference. Um, and, and, the, and that difference can be very powerful. And that's why I, I mentioned the social media, because I think if, we, if we're smart and we use that as, a, as we saw what happened in the UK with young people using uh, social media, and if we, we do that and we do it in a, in a way where we allow their voices to be heard. And then, and then there are some athletes um, that said, but I don't actually need your permission. But not majority of the athletes are not in that position. 
So we need to find a way to, to work with them uh, so that our messages can still get out and hopefully we can have the impact that we need. Yeah, great. All right, so then let's let's wrap up to being in the, and go to a special section, which is just the the international Olympic side of it. You know, where are we in terms of of diversity in terms of having open access at the IOC or at the, you know, that highest level of international competition. So, you know, I, I, I think I'll, I'll start with, with you, Alam, you know, but what are you seeing there? You haven't been a part of South Africa's, you know, uh, in a, you know, sport federations at the highest level, whether it's in volleyball or overall, you know, what do you see at the, at the broader global level um, in terms of diversity and sport management? Well, I think there's change, Scott, but again, at what level? I don't see the change where it needs to happen. The other day I thought, you know, um, why are we not talking about the next female IOC president? Why is nobody having that conversation? Um, We've gone through a change, um, uh, you know, in 2020 around our Olympic uh, leadership where we managed to elect a 63% uh, woman to serve at our level. Um, it's, it's no other National Olympic Committee has that representation. And we, we did it because we made that as part of our governance framework. And there are a few other countries who have similar, I'm saying similar, but not very direct around representation. Uh, so that, that boredom space, I think, is going to take us quite a while to, to, um, to change that. And, and uh, diversity and inclusion and access, it, it's not just about demographics. If you look at the current issues that we're dealing with, I mean, I'm going to use the, the, the recent Winter Olympics with the diplomatic withdrawal, uh, questions being asked around the environment, you know, human rights violations, um, alleged human rights violations and uh, sexual abuse. And, and I'm asking myself the question, do we have the right people at the table? Um, and so we're dealing with some really serious issues um, you know, the LGBTQI plus community, transgender, cisgender issues. I said, I raised my hand and I said, um, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the people who, who requires a lot of education. Um, and I think as sport leaders globally, we should actually admit that this is the kind of change that should happen on our side so that we end up making sure that uh, different people are are elected to, to take up that boredom spaces to allow us to deal with these very challenging issues. I just don't know where we're at as far as leadership globally is concerned, Scott. Because we don't have the conversations. I, I make time to go and find information that's, that I think it should be relevant. But again, having policies and legislation, that's not the answer. You know, you can write a policy around transgender, cisgender people, then what? Yeah, yeah. All right. Ken, what about you? Your thoughts on yeah, it? Yeah, you know, that Olympic world is pretty pretty stagnant, right? It's pretty much, uh, um, you know, I've worked at the 84 Olympics, was deeply involved and been on uh, various uh, national governing bodies and done some work with the USOC and the like. Um, you know, we, we have to give, and not because you and I worked on it to different degrees, give USOC some credit for of trying to transform itself and for trying to give athletes a greater voice, um, especially leading up to, to Tokyo, especially in the midst of um, Black Lives Matters issues in the United States. But overall, you look at the very top 
you, you think about Thomas Bach, you think of, you know, sort of, sort of the Von Antonio Samara, kind of the whole history of leadership. Um, as Elon says, it's been these kind of glorious, you know, old school white elite men. Um, and even for the U.S. in terms of our representatives, that's one area apart, apart from Manita to France. We haven't sent any anybody uh, of, if I'm thinking of all the people of color over ever, maybe. Um, so it, it is this, this bastion of, of uh, I mean, so, it's so much, it very much, it's the closest thing to global royalty that, that, that exists. You know, that, that there are bloodlines there, you know, Juan Antonio Samara Jr. is a big player in it now. So there is that kind of you know, nepotism in sports is a whole nother yeah. topic for, for another day. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it is, it, it's, you know, the old whack-a-mole kind of thing. I think we haven't whacked international sport at that level enough in terms of, of focus and thinking about what, what can be done. But it's so hard to get in there. It's so hard to get, and it's so hard to get people out. This, this is one where you know, maybe a good place to, to, to connect up with the beginning, Scott. This is a place where people have their territory and they do not want to give it up because it's so, it's so perk riddle the travel elite access and real money too uh, that's a that's a great response and that, and and i'll tell you i think that's where we'll we'll end it for now you know there's reading ken's book and thinking about it now 25 years later it's really you know disappointing in many ways that that we don't see as much progress as we would hope it seems that that is the the story but one of the things I think that we've identified is that there are some changes, right? So we're not seeing the big changes that we'd like, but we're seeing some changes in different ways. And whether that's athletes and the roles that athletes are playing, um, you know, whether that's seeing that in countries like in South Africa, to have 63% of your national federation be women, right? That's, that's a, a, tremendous, uh, a tremendous success. In many ways, our countries have been tied. And the thought was, as Ken alluded to earlier, you know, how if you're looking at America at a certain period, what time period is that in South Africa? Because of our our history of racism and it being so uh, still uh, important and relevant to how things operate. And yet we're seeing South Africa has made such tremendous strides in, in certain ways. And so it says that they're not the same history, right? And there's some uniqueness going on that, that make it permanent in different ways. And so, you know, one of the things we didn't cover and, you know, Ken, as we, we, as I add to your idea of how you might do your next edition, <laughs> clearly talking about the g- gender equity clearly talking about access if we're talking about disabled and, you know, Paralympians and, and, and the like, you know, those are some areas where we, we hope to have some future conversations. But I really think, you know, thank you both for, for being a part of this conversation. Ken, of course, for writing the book that for me really set the stage for trying to understand sport and its complexity, not knowing it from the outside. We often just think, These things should either just happen naturally, as you said, that gradualism, that is the very common way. But you gave us some reasons why legally this these things weren't going to be easily changed. And it still seems very, very relevant today. So thank you for for writing the book. Ilhan, thank you for joining us. We know that, you know, it's difficult to to sometimes get together, but we appreciate you being flexible and, and joining us and giving us this rich conversation. So 
I'm going to go ahead and sign off for Sport Matters. You know, thank you to to uh, our staff here at the Global Sport Institute, Kendall Jones, and thank you to everybody else who helps us to put this together. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Ken and Kendall. This show is brought to you by Global Sport Matters. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. This episode was produced by me, Kendall Jones, manager of events and programs, and big thanks to sound designer and editor, Sam Esparza and Big U Music. Our marketing and communications manager is Crisal Valencia. Our digital communications specialist is Brendan Clean, and our marketing and event assistants are Natalie Skegan, Aiden Corrales, and Kate Nelson. Stay up to date with the Global Sport Matters team by following us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter by clicking on the envelope icon at globalsportmatters.com. <laughs>